yay, we're here for the second season. Done with the first season. I didn't think we'd make it, but we did, so let's get started. You're listening to Letters from Comb. I'm Dave Black. We're going to start off this second season with some geology. We'll be taking, uh, we'll be talking about sandstone structures, big ones, little ones, and tiny ones. Starting with mesas and ending with monkey marbles. When you're in Canyonlands, say the Island in the Sky District, or you're in Monument Valley and you look out into the hazy distance and you see those isolated, steep-sided, flat-topped mountains poking above the haze, those are mesas. They're formed by erosion of the softer rocks from the hillside. Harder, more durable rock that remains on top is called cap rock. Continued erosion will eventually reduce a mesa down to a smaller size, and then it becomes a butte. You can easily see this process in Monument Valley or Valley of the Gods. Other buttes can be found in the Bears Ears, including Cheesebox Butte, that's a good butte, and two buttes that make up the Bears Ears. There's a very famous butte that isn't in the Southwest or made of sandstone. It's Devil's Tower in Wyoming. And that's kind of the iconic butte. Just like a mesa becomes a butte, a butte will eventually erode and become a spire. Spires are isolated pillars or pinnacles. Pinnacles in Monument Valley and the Valley of the Gods are great examples. Sometimes when the softer rock layers erode faster than the cap rock, we get what are called balanced rocks. Balanced rock in arches is the perfect example. But even better is the teetering sombrero of Mexican hat rock in Mexican hat, Utah. Sandstone fins are formed as a wall of hard sandstone remains standing after the surrounding rock has been eroded away along parallel joints or fractures. They form when a narrow butte or mesa develops many vertical or parallel cracks. Check out fins in Arches National Park in the Fiery Furnace or the Devil's Garden, or above Moab in Behind the Rocks. A window is a structure that occurs when chemical exfoliation, which is just peeling. Chemical exfoliation or peeling deepens a pothole in the rock until it erodes out the back of a shallow recess in a fin. The window forms as erosion continues, and a good example is Window Rock, just outside of the town of Window Rock, Arizona, which, by the way, is the capital city of the Navajo Nation. Let's talk hoodoos. A hoodoo forms when the window of a sandstone fin collapses, becoming a pinnacle. The locals like to call them goblins, thus Goblin Valley. If you can't travel and you want to see Goblin Valley, watch the movie Galaxy Quest. You'll know what I'm talking about when you see it. bed is a layer of sedimentary rock where water-laid sediments are originally deposited in horizontal layers. How do we perceive beds? Because there's a noticeable change in texture or in color. In other words, a change in grain size or grain composition. Good examples of bedding, also known as strata, are re- easy to find in Grand Canyon, Capitol Reef, Canyonlands, and Cedar Mesa. Graded bedding happens when 
sediment-loaded currents experience a rapid drop in velocity, causing the sediment to deposit. As the sediment settles, larger, heavier sediments settle first, then the smaller, lighter sediments, producing vertically sorted layers with the large chunks on the bottom and the tiny chunks on the top. Cross-bedding is layering at an angle to the main bedding plane. Cross-bedding can form anywhere wind and water carry sediment. In moving current, sediment moves up and over the windward or upstream side of a ripple or dune and deposits on the downstream side. You'll see great cross-bedding on Cedar Mesa and in Bears Ears. Small-scale cross-bedding creates ripple marks. Ripples can be symmetrical or asymmetrical. Ripples formed from waves are formed by the to and fro movement of waves and are symmetrical. Current-formed ripples are formed in moving water and are asymmetrical in response to flowing only in one direction. The longer side of the ripple always faces upstream direction. Mud cracks. Mud cracks are formed when muds dry and shrink. Enough said. Trace fossils are structures that are formed by the actions of living organisms, leaving tracks, burrows, holes, or trails. Comb Ridge, near the road cut between Butler Wash and Comb Wash, is an excellent place to find trace fossils. Okay, everybody's favorite, arches. An arch is created when a sandstone fin is eroded, primarily by wind creating a hole that's at least three feet across in any one direction. Natural bridge is similar to an arch, but has been formed primarily by running water. So where are you going to find arches? Well, all over canyon lands and uh, bears ears and arches, the places covered with them. Where are, you going to, where are you going to find bridges? Well, bridges national monument. As we discussed last year, potholes form in sandstone layers when water dissolves the natural cement that binds the sand particles together, forming small depressions in the rock which continue to form large potholes or small wacos. What is a waco? That's Spanish for hole or hollow. These deepening depressions offer great handholds for climbing, a type of hold referred to as a bucket or a jug or a thank God hole. Final thing, the last, the last sandstone structure we're going to talk about is Moki marbles. These are stone concretions, sandstone balls of sand cemented by calcium carbonate and a shell of iron oxide minerals. They range from BB size to the size of a softball. My son-in-law and I were having a late-night snack the other night. We devoured 14 tacos, a plate of nachos, followed by a root beer float. And all I could think about when I was eating those tacos was I wish these were Navajo tacos from Twin Rocks in Bluff. And it suddenly dawned on me that that's not something we've talked about, and we really do need to talk about Navajo tacos. They come from the Four Corners area, and they have a curious history. According to Navajo tradition, fried bread was created in 1864 using flour, sugar, salt, baking soda, and lard 
that was given to the Navajos by the U.S. government when, in Arizona, they were forced to make the 300-mile walk, known as the Long Walk, to relocate at Bosque Redondo in New Mexico, onto land that was unsuitable to grow their staple vegetables and beans. The first Navajo taco, though, hmm, was created in the 1960s by a Bilagana, a white man named Lou Shepard, when he worked as a manager of a motel and restaurant owned by the tribe. A Navajo taco is basically a sopapilla, fry bread loaded with a seasoned ground beef and bean mixture, chopped lettuce, sliced tomato, and topped with sour cream and shredded cheddar cheese. This segment is titled Polygamy, WTF. Have you ever driven through the 19th century residential areas of southeast Utah? You might have seen some strange home architecture. Old stone or brick homes with multiple entry doors and multiple chimneys. Did it confuse you? That's because you have entered the polygamy zone. Those 150-year-old houses were built for polygamous families with a door for each set of wife and kids. Some of those old homes even had secret rooms and some had tunnels to escape the federal marshal sent to arrest them for having more than one wife. We've mentioned polygamy several times in these podcasts. It was an important part of Utah history, Mormon history, and the settlement of the West of the histories of Four Corners cities like Blanding, Monticello, and Bluff. The church and its members downplay the old polygamy culture of the church in order to make the church's current stand clear that it hasn't practiced polygamy for over a century. So what was the reason for Mormon polygamy in the first place? When Joseph Smith first explained polygamy to Brigham Young, Brother Brigham was opposed and was repulsed by it, but he and the rest of the church eventually warmed up to the idea. They believed it was God's will and divinely, and they believed it was part of the restoration of all things, as mentioned in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, which included the polygamy of the Old Testament prophets. Other scriptures mention the need to raise up a mighty generation. Okay, what's a mighty generation? Well, we've already encountered two mighty generations that resulted from Mormon polygamy, the Blacks and the Johnsons, When you have entire families doing things like taming the West, that's a mighty generation. I wouldn't want to face down any of them. They were some pretty hard characters. Polygamy polygamy made it easy as well to follow the commandment to multiply and replenish the earth. Another thing polygamy did was to bring the Mormons together and give them a distinct identity. Before polygamy was announced, Mormonism was just another oddball upstart religion. But once they announced polygamy, then there was something solid people could focus on that they really hated about the Mormons. It gave the Mormons their distinct identity, but you have to wonder if it was worth the persecution it brought down on the church. I believe that polygamy was rapidly seen as a foolproof way to secure a solid commitment of loyalty to the church. A man would be unlikely to stray far if he's already sacrificed years as a missionary, 10% of his income as tithing, 
and raised a couple dozen kids for the church. So what did outsiders believe about Mormon polygamists? Well, for one, polygamy will take care of the widows and the spinsters. Not so. Number two, Mormon men live in big harems. Not so. Only a few practiced polygamy and most of them had only two or three wives. And the third one is, it was all about sex. Not so. And I'll explain that in a future podcast. That's it for part one of Polygamy, WTF. Johnson, Johnson, and Johnson. Great, great, great Uncle Benjamin Franklin Johnson was among the first Mormons to practice polygamy. He had seven wives, 45 children, and 374 grandchildren. It's no wonder Johnson is the largest Mormon family, some 50,000. And it's no wonder that I keep tripping over Johnson's when when I'm doing research on these episodes. And the Irish Black Brothers were nearly as prolific. They got their polygamous starts by marrying into the families of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. But it was Benjamin Franklin Johnson who had a hand in the creation of those fundamentalist sects that you hear about, that you hear about in the news all the time. Born in New York in 1815, Johnson married his first bride in 1841. Two years later, on a Sunday morning walk with Joseph Smith, Smith told Benjamin about polygamy, and by the way, could he have one of Benjamin's sisters? His sister accepted, and by the end of 1857, Benjamin himself had seven wives. They were the early versions of the sister wives. In fact, two non-sisters, both named Sarah, two non-sisters, both named Melissa, and three actual sisters, Harriet, Sarah, and 15-year-old Susan. Imagine the confusion in that house. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin Johnson went on the lam and into hiding down in the Mexican colonies after warrants for his arrest were issued. Benjamin's father and most of his brothers became polygamists, and behold, the 50,000. Many of them became explorers and early settlers of southern Utah from Zion Canyon over to Indian Creek. Charles Ellis Johnson was a Mormon photographer known around the world for his unique portraits. His father, Joseph Ellis Johnson, was one of the mighty generation, the sons of Ezekiel, a brother of William Darby Johnson, who, by the way, died from a rabid coyote bite in Colonia Diaz in 1896. Yep, my family. Charlie was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1857. The family traveled across the plains to Salt Lake City, but because Joseph hated the idea of living in the city, they moved to the southern Utah area near St. George. At a very young age, Charlie spent time with the Indian tribes in southern Utah and learned the Ute and Paiute languages. As a youth, he worked in that part of Utah as an archaeologist and a botanist with no formal training. Charlie met and married a daughter of Brigham Young and later divorced her after he moved back to Salt Lake City. Johnson and Mormon Apostle Parley P. Pratt 
opened the Johnson Pratt Drug, in which they sold the Johnson family patent medicines. Apparently, the laxatives were a bit harsh, as implied in this old ditty. Snow in the mountains, rain in the hills, old man died eating Johnson pills. Charlie was also a dabbler in photography, and he opened a studio doing photography for the local theater and some minor publications. He also did he also did some artistic nudes, basically softcore pornography. Many of his subjects were famous actresses passing through town. His specialty was stereoscopic photography, making him a pioneer in 3D porn. <laughs> Ironically, Charlie was never excommunicated, but rather became an unofficial photographer for the Mormon Church. Uh, what we have here is a failure to excommunicate. Hmm, okay. Charlie eventually moved to California where he died in 1926. A postscript to this story. Charlie Johnson walked a different path from his rough and ready aunts and uncles and siblings. He had a gift and produced amazing photos of late 19th century Native Americans and cowboys haunting photos that seem alive and that speak to the observer. Google him and take a look. That's it for Letters from Combe. Next episode, we'll be talking about the Navajo Sandstone and the demise of Lot Smith and the mysterious Navajo Mountain. Talk to you soon.